This is our kind of our third, really our our fourth Sunday evening service. We did we've covered two other topics, but the, but we've done three kind of Sunday nights before this, and we've been talking about things that distinguish Grace Bible Fellowship as a church. So things that that um, that distinguish us. What what makes us who we are as a local church. And I've been, you know, I keep forgetting what I actually call these. I think I'm calling them core convictions or else we've been calling them foundational beliefs. Um, and, and maybe I'm just kind of using both of those, but core convictions of our church, foundational beliefs, what, what kind of makes us who we are as a local church, the things that we're committed to that really should shape every ministry, everything that we do. Does anybody remember what the first one was? Just yell it out if you if you remember. Uh, yeah, a high view of God. And what does that mean that we have a high view of God? It means we have a high view of God, but what is that like how does that work? Do you remember Ivan? No, Ivan doesn't remember. High view of God. What does that, what does that mean? Just, there's probably five or six things that it means for us. Does anyone want to just kind of yell out something that you think it might mean? Yeah. So give him glory. And that's something that we do as a church, right? That's, that, that's, we talked about that for sure in, on that first night. What, what does it mean to give glory to God? And even kind of went into that. Anything else? What is, what does it mean that we give God glory? Yeah, a, yeah, a right view of God according to scripture, right? I think that's very central to everything that we do is that we want to understand who God is. And if we understand who God is, how does that affect us and what we do as a church? Okay, yeah, a, a, Philip said a low view of man, and I, th- I think that, I, yeah, I, I, you're kind of struggling with that because I, I know what you mean. It means, it means we're not ultimate, right? And, and that's really what we were trying to cover under this idea that we have a high view of God. It means that, that we don't really exist as a church for our own sake. We are here to glorify God, right? We are here to honor God. He is ultimate. And it's not really so much about us, although today we're going to kind of come in and, and talk a little bit about man, but, but we as a church must obey this God who is so great and so awesome and so glorious that, that we must follow him and we don't just do what we want to do. We do what he tells us to do. And so the idea then is that God is ultimate. And the, even the church and even us as individuals, we exist for him, not he for us. Do you have a question, Daniel? Yes, Dan, Dan, Daniel said we will never rise above our our perception of our God. Yeah, in fact, 
that, that we did actually, there's a very famous Tozer quote that we would have used in that first session that I don't have memorized, but he used a big word. The, the most pretentious thing about us is how we view God. The most important thing about any individual person is what, what in their deepest self they conceive God to be like. So we as a church want to be a kind of church that sees God as great and awesome and amazing. And then therefore, we're here to worship Him, glorify Him, honor Him. We're not here necessarily for ourselves. He is ultimate and, and we are not. And then next, the next two weeks, we looked at something else, another core conviction. Does anybody remember what we called that one? Yeah, yeah, the sufficiency of Scripture. I, th- I think we called it uh, a sufficient view of Scripture. And we kind of went through and did a little bit of a an overview of the doctrine of Scripture. And we, st- uh, we, we looked at six aspects of Scripture. Does anybody want to kind of list some of those things? What are those things that we looked at about Scripture? Just go. Authoritative, yeah. Scripture is a, our authority. What else? Yeah, inspired by God. Inspiration. Anything else to remember? Yeah, okay, yeah. Better than, better than, than honey from the honeycomb, I think is how David says it. Yeah, we did, we looked at that in, in, um, Psalm 19, which, which talked about just scripture as revelation, that God is, God is revealing himself in scripture. So, Scripture is revelation from God. It's inspired by God, which then means that it is inerrant. And we talked a little bit about the inerrancy of Scripture, that, that Scripture um, is never wrong. In the, in, the, in the original manuscripts, Scripture uh, contains no errors about anything, whether things of faith or even just historical facts. Whatever Scripture affirms is true. Whatever it presents is true and solid and pure. Um, now, Scripture contains things like the lies of the devil, but when it says those things, it accurately portrays what lies the devil told, right? And so Scripture never affirms anything contrary to fact. Scripture is also infallible. That is, it's not capable of leading us astray because God is a God of truth and because God never lies, and he knows all things. Therefore, Scripture is inerrant and incapable of leading us astray. And because that is Scripture, what like what Will said, it's authoritative. If God is speaking to us in Scripture, then we need to obey the Scripture, right? We can't decide, well, God says this, but I want to do it some other way. So, um, scripture is our authority. And if, again, if that kind of follows, right, if we have a high view of God and we think he is ultimate, then when he speaks, we're going to have to follow what he says. And then the final category that we looked at is the sufficiency of scripture. And, and the idea with the sufficiency of scripture is that everything we need for life and godliness or everything we need to do good works, or like it says at the end of second Timothy, 317, which sometimes I just can't bring verses in my, into my head here. Um, sorry, 1 Timothy 3, 16 and verse 17. 
Oh, wow. I'm, it really is Second Timothy. I'm just, first, I was looking in chapter 4 or something. So, verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we talked about how as a, as being sufficient, scripture is that which makes us complete and equips us for every good work. There's, there's nothing that God wants us to do to glorify and honor Him that isn't revealed in His Word. And so we have everything we need in scripture in order to tell us how to, how to function as a church, how to function as individuals. And, um, and so I think, I think that's, that's all we want to say as far as, as way of review. And so we have this high view of God. We have a sufficient view of scripture. What, what else do you think would be foundational for us to understand as a local church? And there's, there's five or six things that I have on, in my mind that, that we're going to cover. But what, what do you think would be, would maybe follow that? What else is going to help us as a as a local church to do what we should do? What 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 else should define us as a local church? Maybe that's kind of too scary to even even try to guess. Okay, yeah, Roseanne says the the depravity of man and actually that's exactly where we we happen to be going today is we're going to we're going to talk about the depravity of man. So good good job. Anything else that you think we we would want to understand as a local church what should define define us? Yeah, our mission. That yeah, really really good. Um, our mission as a, as a church, we're going to, we're going to look at that very briefly today, but we'll, we'll spend some more time on that later in this series. Yeah. Anything else? What's yeah, the ordinances, the, yeah, that's, that's a good word. The ordinances, the baptism and, uh, and the Lord's supper. Those are, those are things that we will, we will talk about for sure. As we as we kind of get a little further down into this series, anything else? Well, was scripture alone, yeah, which we which we did kind of hopefully cover, uh, but yeah, scripture, what our view of scripture, um, yeah, I think I think that's good for now. I, I so you know, but things like. You know, what even is a church, right? That, if we're going to have something that defines us as a church, we're going to have to know what a church is. Um, the mission of the church, that kind of, that kind of falls into there, the Great Commission. And, and let's just, why don't we ask that? What, what does the church exist for? What, what's the church? What are we here for? Why are we, why do we get together on Sundays and, and do stuff together? What, are, what is the church for? Does anybody want to take a, 
There's probably multiple things, so it, you won't probably get it just right and wrong. <laughs> okay, yeah, to glorify God and to make disciples. I think that's, that's really good. Um, to, we're here to glorify God and make disciples. And I think those two things go together because ultimately, right, everything exists to glorify God, right? But, um, but that doesn't really tell us how we're supposed to glorify Him, right? So, yeah, everything exists to glorify God, but then how are we supposed to do that as a, a local church? And, and Dwayne, you nailed that one too, because we're to, we're to do that by making disciples. And so let's, let's just go quickly and let's look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It's really an amazing way that Matthew ends his gospel just with this commission and it just kind of just kind of the book just leaves you hanging with this mission that that Jesus gives his disciples to do and uh, starting in verse 18 and and Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so we have this commission that extends right to the end of the age to make disciples, and that involves baptizing them. And we usually just think of that as, as conversion, but, but converting them to faith, making them into true disciples of Christ. And, and initially we, we baptize them into this, this body of, of believers. And, and then we teach them to observe everything that the Lord commanded us. And, and while we're doing that, he is, he is with us. So ultimately the church's function is to glorify God, but it seems like this is how we're to do that. This is our task. And, you know, we could, we could summarize it. I don't know. Um, that we're to save people and and make them like Christ, right? Or sometimes we maybe we, we could use more theological terms where it's it's salvation and sanctification, right? Sanctification is the process of being made more like Christ. So salvation and sanctification, save people and then and then teach them to obey Christ. Now. What, what is the common theme in, in both of those two aspects, right? So we're to evangelize people, right? And, and have them come to faith. And then we're to, to teach them to grow to be like Christ. What, what's the kind of common thing in both parts of that equation? That's, sometimes I, I don't know how to ask my questions without just making it so easy. But, um, who's involved in that? And even in, in Matthew twenty eight nineteen, who's who who are we going to here? To the world, yeah. And and 
And who's in the world? Or what's in the world? Men and men and women. Yeah, men and women. So the, the common denominator that I'm looking for there is, is people, right? So our mission is to make an impact on, on other people. And so, uh, there's this, this common group. So we've seen that we have this view of God and we have a, a view of His Word. And now we realize that our mission involves these people that we're called to reach and help them be like Christ. And so if we're going to fulfill this mission, what I'm getting at here is that we need to, to know who these people are. We need to know what are we, what are we dealing with when we're trying to save people and we're trying to make them like Christ? Now, when we, when we think about man, so we're thinking about mankind then, what would be two things, and one of them's already come out so far today, but what would be two things that the Bible teaches us about man? Two kind of key things. Very good at sinning. Yes. Okay. That's number, that's the first part or the second part, I guess, whatever way we want to do that. So we're very good at sinning. What's another way to, to describe that? How do we call that theologically? Evil? Sure. Um, what else? Yeah. Rob says total depravity, total depravity. So man is, or fallen is another way that we might talk about that, right? Man is fallen and depraved. What, what else though does the Bible tell us about man? How is man made? Created in, in God's image. That's what Daniel was going to say. Just shout it out, Daniel. Yeah. To, we're not, uh, you can, you know, or you can put your hand up, but, but if you shout it out, then nobody beats you to it. So we are, we are made in the image of God and yet we've, we've fallen and are now depraved and, and, and that depravity is total. We'll talk about what that means, um, probably tonight yet. So this is the third thing that, that is going to characterize our church, Grace Bible Fellowship, is that, and I'm calling it a proper view of man. When, when I first made these notes, I, I kind of did exactly what Philip did. I said, we have a low view of man. And in some ways we do have a low view of man because we don't think man is ultimate. We think God is ultimate. But we, we also want to hold with that, that, that man is made in the image of God. And so I, then I changed it that we have a, we have a proper view of man or a, a biblical view of man. And so there's kind of this, this balanced view of man. And we're going to start tonight then on, on this idea that man was made in the image of God. Does, who knows where we, where we find that in scripture? Where do we find man made in the image of God? It's in multiple places. Genesis 1, yeah, 26 and 27. Let's, let's read that. Genesis 1. Really, we'll, we'll read 26 to 28. This is really the first place where we see 
God making man. That God has made the the creation now at this point, but he hasn't he hasn't yet made man. And so Genesis one twenty six. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea." and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we, we see there this, these two terms in verse 26 that we were made in the image and the likeness of God. Image and the likeness. What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? Yeah, we share certain attributes with God. Um, yeah, that's, that's really good. Um, actually, technically speaking, scripture doesn't ever actually define what it means, what the, what the content is of us being made in the image of God. And, and through history, there's kind of been different views. What does it actually mean that we are made in the image of God? And, and one of the, one of the views, and I think it's actually the, the correct view is that we've been made in some, in some definite characteristics and or qualities or something about who we are as human beings that, that, that makes up this idea of the image of God. And this is, this is called the substantive view that some definite characteristic or quality of of man makes us in God's image. And, and throughout church history, it's actually, there's, there's just been lots of people trying to guess what in the world that actually is. And so some people early in church history said it's, it's our ability to walk upright. That's how we're in the image of God, which I, that, that one kind of makes me laugh a little bit. But, uh, but other ones are, you know, are something about our physical makeup. Um, some part of our, or, or psychological aspect of us or spiritual quality, like the ability to reason or the fact that we are moral creatures, right? We, when we look at the animals, they're, they're not in the image of God and they don't have this, this morality. Um, Justin Martyr kind of held that view. Uh, intellect is what Gregory of Nyssa said, that it was our, our ability to think or um, Augustine said it was our rational and spiritual soul, the, the, the soul of man that makes us distinct from the animals. Um, Thomas Aquinas said it was our memory, understanding, will, and uh, in other places he said that it was our ability to love. And so there's this, this substantive view that, that there's something about who we are that, that God has imprinted us with that, that kind of differentiates us from the animals and, and that is the image of God. Another view, and, and we don't want to go too much into all this, but another view is the, the, the relational view. And I think there's something true about this as well. Man, man has been made 
in, in an ability to have relationships. And in that ability to have relationships, we're, again, different than the animals. We, ha- we have relationships. And, and then when you look at God, He also is relational, right? And, and same thing with the, the substantive view. God, I don't think God walks upright, although the Lord Jesus would have walked upright just like us, but, but He has reason, morality, intellect, you know, He has um, at least a, a rational, maybe not a, a soul, but he has a, he's, he's a rational being. He understands things. He has a will. So the substantive view, the relational view. And then the, the third view of, of the image of God is that it is tied to what we do. And they call, theologians call that the functional view, that there's something about what man does that means that he's in the image of God. So we've been made, and if you just look at the next verse, or even the verse that we read, God God made them in in the image and likeness of God, and then they're to have dominion over the lower creation, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And so God God created them, and then He blessed them, and He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion. And so... Some people understand Genesis one twenty eight to just further explain what it means that we're made in the image of God. Um, so the, there's these three kind of views, and I, I think the substantive view is best. It's it's hard though because Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what it is. It, we we just all we know is that we've been made in the image of God. And something about who we are then, and, and it's be, really it's because of who we are that we can have relationships. It's because of who we are that we are made to have dominion over the earth. And so I think this, the substantive view, and, and we can't maybe narrow it down exactly to one thing, but really something about, and really I would say even a lot of things about how we are made shows that we are in the image of God. And so just most simply, if for us to be made in the image of God means that that man is like God in some way and we represent God. So we've been made like God and we represent God in the world. Now the the best way to see what the image of God is is to look at the Lord Jesus who scripture says is the the perfect image of God. Now, he's also God and man. And so when we look at Jesus, we can see what it looks like to be a, a, a man who perfectly represents God. Now, throughout Scripture, this idea then of, of us being made in the image of God continues to be kind of expounded on and, and repeated. And so look at, look at Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5 verse 1 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. And so there we see again, man was created in the likeness of God. Now, one thing that's important for us to understand about this image is 
how the, the image of God is affected after the fall. So when in the Bible, when in Scripture is the fall of man? Genesis, what chapter? Good, yeah, Genesis chapter 3. And, and so already we see, even in Genesis chapter 5, that this creation of God and the image of man is already um, confirmed. But then we see it again. Go to Genesis chapter 9. And we see that, that even after the flood and after the fall, in Genesis chapter 9, we see the, this, this idea of, of man being made in God's image is reaffirmed. So Genesis 9, and we could start reading at verse 3. This is kind of after the flood, and God's kind of reestablishing Noah and the earth. And in verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Then he says in verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for, and here's the explanation of it, for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And so here we see that, that there's going to be an account that has to be given when a man sheds another man's blood. There's going to be an account given. And the reason that this account is, is going to have to be made is because God made man in his own image. And that's the same word that we saw in Genesis chapter 3. And so even after the fall, men are still in the image of God. And we can see this in the, in the New Testament as well. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 7. First Corinthians 11 verse 7 and we won't we definitely won't cover this context although one day one day we should really look at this passage but First Corinthians 11 just verse 7 for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God but woman is the glory of man and really all I want you to see there is that that we see that man again, and, and we would affirm this for women too because we saw that in Genesis 3, but man is made in the image of God. And then let's go to James chapter 3. James 3, we can start... We can start in verse uh, 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, 
My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. But notice there again in verse 8 at the end that, that again, when we, when we curse somebody, we're cursing somebody who's been made in the likeness of God. And so again, just what I really want you to see is that we've been made in the image of God, that somehow that means that we're, we're like God in some unspecified way and that we represent God in the world. And that image and likeness continues even after the fall so that that image is still in us, even though we, we all admit in some ways it's been marred ever since the fall of man. We're not, we don't represent God to the full extent that we would have if we were innocent and holy. Now, as we just kind of think about this, there's, there's lots of things, and I've really drawn this from uh, notes of one of my seminary professors, but what, what are some of the implications of the image of God? Even some of them we've, we've seen already. What, what are some of the ethical implications that we can draw from this idea that we've been made in the image of God? Any ideas? Daniel, go ahead. The sanctity of life, yeah. Yeah, and what, what do you, what do you mean specifically by that? Sanct, define sanctity. What, what do you, what do you mean by that word? Yeah. Yeah, there's a special quality about human life that, that merits a, an extra kind of a punishment when that life is taken. Um, you know, we might say something like, you, you know, the image of God shows us that, um, that, that life has value, right? That, that, that human beings are valuable because we've been made specifically in God's image. And, and so where, where would that, that kind of idea, what, what are some areas where, where that idea would, um, I don't know, where, where could we apply that idea that, that human life is valuable? Yeah, abortion. Um, the killing of the really the most innocent people that there are, little, little babies in the womb. Uh, and sometimes people want to even do that after, after they come out of the womb. Um, abortion is really the, the murder of, of people who've been made in the image of God. And so abortion is one area where this idea that we've been made in the image of God shows us that that, that is not okay, right? That is, that is not something that, that, uh, that we can just kind of say that this is no problem. Um, abortion is, uh, is a, a wrongful taking of human life. Um, you know, we can, we can just apply that to older people too, right? That murder is sinful because it's, it's a, the killing of somebody that's been made in the image of God. Uh, even James just draws out even something as simple as, as cursing somebody else, right? You, sh- you, you curse with your tongue. You curse a, another human being who's been made in the image and likeness of God. And, and these things ought not to be, my brethren. Um, and, and so the, the same tongue that, 
that blesses God shouldn't curse somebody that's been made in the image of God. So that, that's definitely one, one area that, uh, that we can apply this idea of, of the image of God. What, what else, where else, what else comes to mind? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that would apply. Just Daniel, if you can't hear me, he's just saying more broadly. Doesn't this just apply to to helping other people out and in people in need and those kind of things? And I think yeah, if these people, all people even though marred by sin, are, have been made in the image of God. And so there should be a, a care and a love for them and just a recognition of their, of their intrinsic value simply because they've been made in the image of God. Uh, I, have, I have, from my Dr. Vlock, I have, uh, what does he got here? Six, six things, that um, six ethical implications that we are made in the image of God. Um, I don't know that I want to get into all of these. Uh, he talks about the animal rights movement, and uh, he, he says this. Let me just quote him. He says, Western civilization is traditionally held to speciesism, which is the view that humans have greater moral worth than animals. Some in the animal rights movement, though, have challenged speciesism, claiming that humans are not ontologically superior, superior to animals. Um, so, you know, it, this, to me, this just seems like it, it should be a self-evident fact that we are made above the animals, right? And if you look at Genesis chapter one, we've been made in the image of God. Animals have not been made in the image of God, but, but some people in our society really have kind of thrown off all of, all of creation as much as they, they possibly can. And, and, and this is really the logical view is that, all species on the earth are of equal value. And, and sometimes it's just, it just is almost bordering on the absurd that people, people hold these views. But, uh, Dr. Vlock continues, he says, but the, the fact that humans are made in the image of God and are to rule over the lower creation shows that humans have a higher dignity and value than animals. It should be understood that this right to rule over the creation carries with it great responsibility. Having dominion does not mean the right to abuse the creation, end quote. And I think that's, that's good. We, we've been made and we recognize that we've been made above the animals. And yet, it doesn't mean that we're, we go and abuse animals or, or hurt animals or anything like that. But it's just this absurdity in, in the, the Western culture nowadays that, that we view, you know, in fact, somebody was, I think Rob was telling me the other day that if you, can you help us out with this, Rob? If you um, if you hurt a, an eagle's egg, what is it like a two hundred thousand dollar fine? Is that what some kind of ridiculous fine? But you can you can have the government pay for an abortion, and so it, it's just the like eagles' eggs are in in people's minds are more valuable than than human babies. And so that's kind of an, an outcome of the rebellion of God that, 
that's kind of happening in the world. But the, the fact that we've been made in the image of God should kind of remove that. Um, he talks about the environmental movement. Capital punishment is, is something that comes out from the fact that men are made in the image of God. And, and we saw that right there in Genesis 9. If somebody kills man by man, and we understand that not just like in revenge, but by man, uh, the government should punish that person. And so the, the Bible does support capital punishment for people who murder other people. Um, and, and that all flows out of the fact that we've been made in the image of God. Other areas that, that are affected by this is the idea of racism. If we're all made equally in the, in, uh, you know, if all races, if all ethnicities have been made in the image of God, then that kind of bars the idea that one ethnic group is superior to another ethnic group. We are all equal in that way. Um, let me read this quote from Wayne. Wayne Grudem, he says this, he says, quote, the this, and he's talking about the image of God there. So the, the image of God has profound implications for our conduct towards others. It means that people of every race deserve equal dignity and rights. It means that elderly people, those seriously ill, the mentally retarded, and children yet unborn deserve full protection and honor as human beings. If we ever deny our unique status and creation as God's only image bearers, we will soon begin to depreciate the value of human life. We will tend to see humans as a merely higher form of animal, and we will begin to treat others as such. We will also lose much of our sense of the meaning of life. End quote. So I, I think that is that's that's helpful. Now that's that's men made in the image of God. Let's let's move on now to the second thing and and that is this, that the Bible teaches that man is fundamentally and fatally flawed and in desperate need of salvation. Man is fundamentally and fatally flawed and in desperate need of salvation. Or as Lindell put it, we are very good at sinning. And, uh, and this is the, the idea of the depravity or the sinfulness of man. And this, this, this one as well is going to really shape everything that we are trying to do as a church because when we understand what man is and who man is, we understand what needs to happen for them to get saved and then to grow in holiness. So everything that we do as a local church is, is again, ultimately to glorify God, but then secondarily, we're, we're trying to reach people and, and have them come to salvation and then have them grow into obedience to Christ. And that means that we are attempting to deal with man's major problem. Man is sinful and needs salvation. And even, even a saved person is going to continue to have sinful thoughts, sinful actions, sinful words. And, and so we need sanctification. And so, so there's this, this fundamental problem in men, and we're trying to, to reach these men and, and see them made holy. And, and so as we do that, we need to recognize this, this problem that we're dealing with. And so what, what is sin? We're talking about sin now, the, the depravity of man. What is sin? Does anybody want to try to give me a definition of sin? Or some things. Just give me some things that 
What about the young guys are all quiet today? Where any of you young, young guys or gals want to try to guess what what is sin? I'm just rebellion against God and his law. Yeah, that's good. Anyone else want to what else what else is involved in sin? Separation from God, yeah, that that results from that sin. Where did what in what realms do we see sin? In what realms of of mankind? What what aspects of us are affected by sin? Every aspect, yeah. So and what would that what would some of those examples include? Where do we sin? Where do we sin, Ivan? He, <laughs> he goes, uh, in, you know, in our in our thinking, in our speaking, right, in our actions. Those are kind of the the main three areas of us in our in what we do and what we say, in uh, in what we think in our minds. So sin is thinking, acting, or speaking in ways contrary to God's righteous commandments or on the other side it's failing to think act or speak according to the same right we can we can sin by doing something against god's commandments or we can sin by not doing what god commanded us to do right there's sins of what they what they call sins of commission where i commit a sin and an act of sin and there's sins of omission where i fail to do something that God has called me to do. That That is sin. And it, it comes out in our thinking, our acting, and our speaking. We, we sin by doing what God says not to do, and we sin by not doing what God says to do. Wayne Grunham defines sin like this. He says, quote, Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God. Any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So act, attitude, or nature. And then he says this definition of sin, or the definition of sin given above specifies that sin is a failure to conform to God's moral law, not only in action and in attitude, but also in our moral nature. Our very nature, he says, the internal character that is the essence of who we are as persons can also be sinful. End quote. So sin is... In our actions, it's in our attitudes, and even there's something sinful about our nature, and we're going to talk about that as we talk about what the Bible calls original sin. That there's, there's something about who we are as we're born into this world that also is sinful against God. Now, if you just wanted to go to scripture, go, take me somewhere in scripture that, that tells us about how we've been affected by sin, where would you take me? Where would you go if you're, you're evangelizing, let's say you're evangelizing somebody and you're, you're talking to them and, uh, and the topic of sin comes up as it should in, in evangelism. Where are you going to take someone to show them that men are sinful? Romans 3, 20, 23. Roman, yeah, that's a great one. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the, good, uh, NR. Freely justified. Yeah, so 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, where else? Ephesians chapter 2. Yeah, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 really, really lays that out really clearly. What about in the Old Testament? Let's say we can only go in the Old Testament. Where are you going to go in the Old Testament? Genesis 6, 5. Great. Do you want to read that for us, Philip? Yeah, the Lord saw. When is this? Genesis chapter 6. This is right before the flood. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When you think about that verse, that just, it almost sounds like an, an exaggeration, right? It's just, it's so, so strong. The, the wickedness was great. The, the every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only, was, or, yeah, was, of his heart was only evil continually. And of course, we know though that God is the God of truth does not lie. And if you just think, if we just start with that verse and, and kind of expound that out, we realize that if that's the case for Noah's generation, that's the case of every single other person that's been born into this world, right? God's talking about all of men there, and they all came from the same Adam and Eve, and so all have the same nature. Uh, where else would you go in the Old Testament to show about the depravity of man? That's a great one. Psalm, Psalm 10.4. Psalm 10.4 is just not in my mind right now. So let's go see what that says. Yeah, in the, in the pride of his face, the ESV says, in the pride of his face, the, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And of course, if we just flip over a few pages, probably in your Bible to Psalm 14, verse 1, we see that this is what the fool says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now when we, when we see this, this idea that all his thoughts are there is no God, the, the idea of, of this in, in the original there is that the sinful man doesn't just think that, oh, there is no God. What, what this means is he lives his life as if God is not there and God is not watching and God is not sovereign over it all, right? That he, he, he doesn't just, you know, think something, ah, oh, there's no God. He, he actually, he lives day to day as though there were no God. Um, other verses here, let's, Genesis, and you could just listen if you want, or if you want, you can, you can try to turn to them quick, but, 
Genesis 8.21, kind of at the end of the, the Noah episode, after that verse that we read in 6.5, Genesis 8.21 says, when the, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the, the sacrifice from that, that Noah made, the, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. But that verse there, that, that middle of that verse, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is what God says about man. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 3 says this. Um, Solomon first says that there is an evil in all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to all. And then he says also, so here's another evil under the sun, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. And so there's this recognition by Solomon that the hearts of men are full of evil and, and there's a kind of a madness in their hearts while they live and then after that they're gonna die. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's a, that's a key verse there, Ecclesiastes 7 20. Now, these, these verses show what we call original sin. Each person is born into the world a sinner. And, and we, we are sinners by our birth, by our nature, and then we're, we're sinners by choice. We choose and, and commit acts of sin in our thinking actions and, uh, and our speech. Matthew 7 verse 11 says, Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? But He recognizes that men are evil as we come into this world. And when Adam and Eve sinned, we sinned with them. We sinned in them. Because they were our representatives, we sinned in them. And we also kind of descended from them. Now, that's a difficult topic is, is how sin transmits from Adam and Eve to us. But, but most simply, they were our representatives. God had, had put them there as our representatives. And so what they did, we did. And that, you know, that, something like that happens all the time if we think about it. You know, you have maybe a boss and your boss makes a decision for the company. And that decision, whether you like it or not, is going to affect your job, right? Your position, your wages. And so, we, we kind of see that kind of a thing every day in our day-to-day life that sometimes one person represents a whole group of people. And, uh, and so as our representative, God chose, you know, if it, if it was up to me who I would choose as a representative, I would say, well, why don't you choose God? Because you're going to make a much better choice than, than I am. And so God chose the person that's going to be act as our representative he chose, I would assume, the very best person who could have acted as our representative. And, uh, and Adam sinned, and because of his sin, we are now born 
into this world as sinners. And and maybe someday we could kind of dig deep into the, the transmission of sin, but that's that's really the, the the most basic explanation. And Scripture just doesn't say too much more than that. that. Just that Adam was our representative. When he sinned, in some kind of sense, we sinned. And, and because of the sin that we inherited from Adam, we are all guilty. And one of the ways that we know we're guilty is because the penalty for sin is death, and we all die, Right? And so God views that, that sin that we inherited from Adam by nature, He views that even as a punishable sin. And of course, we know that God is just. But I don't really want to go too deep into that idea of the transmission of sin. But, but it's, it's just true. When you look at the world, we can tell that every single person is born sinful, right? We can, we look at the world, and no matter how much people want to deny the, 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 the original sin, the, no matter how much people want to deny the fact that, that we are born evil, it is just plain that sin is, is abundant in the world, isn't it? Nobody can deny the reality of sin. And so Louis Burkhoff says, while the, quote, while the, the existence of original sin has met with widespread denial, the presence of actual sin in the life of man is generally admitted. And it really doesn't even take any proof. You just, just look at the world in any generation at any time and you will see that people do not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, naturally speaking. It's just, it's just not how the world is. Men and women are born sinners and sinful. And the, exist- the existence of sin can really only be explained by what Scripture teaches, the, the depravity of man, and sometimes called original sin or original pollution or inherited corruption, original corruption. Um, Herman Bavink said, quote, if this doctrine, and he's talking about the doctrine of, of the depravity of man, if he says, if this doctrine is clearly eluc- elucidated, it is daily confirmed by everyone's experience and vindicated by the witness of its opponents themselves, end quote. So if we just clearly explain the doctrine of sin, everyone has to admit that sin is in the world. And again, Scripture is just so full of evidence and proof of this. 1 Kings 8.46, Solomon says in his prayer, if they sin against you, and then he kind of cuts himself off and he says, for there is no one who does not sin. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And so it's, that's very, very clear that, that all men are sinners. Psalm 143 verse 2, the psalmist says, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. No one living is righteous before you. There's not a, a single person. And so the psalmist says, he's recognizing this, and so he says, don't enter into judgment with me, Lord, because I realize if, if you wanted to judge me by the standard of perfection, by your holy standard, we would all be judged as unrighteous. Proverbs 20, verse 9 Ask this rhetorical question, who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? 
who can say I've made my heart pure, I'm clean from my sin? And obviously the answer is nobody can say that because nobody is free from sin. First John 1 and verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Then it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. So if we as as believers, he's talking to believers there, if we say that that there's no sin in us, well, then John says that we're deceiving ourselves. If, If you don't think of yourself as a sinner, you are deceiving yourself. And then if you say that you have not sinned, you know, that, that you've never sinned in your life, then you're making God a liar because God in His Word has told us that we are sinners and sinful. And of course, when we're, when we're talking about, about the sin of man, the standard is, like we saw in Romans 3.23, the standard is the glory of God. The standard that, that we're comparing ourselves to when we're asking is men sinful it's the perfect standard of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the, that is the standard. And so, if you just think about that for a minute, if you are not utterly Christ-like in every thought, every action, every word that comes out of your mouth, you are sinning the sin of, of, of omission, right? You are, you are sinning sins of omission really pretty much nonstop throughout the day. Even in our best prayers and our most righteous actions, we are not utterly Christ-like in everything that we do. And so we are constantly sinning. And, and every one of us is affected by sin. And so we need to be those who ask for forgiveness. So everyone is, is affected by sin. And what we see in Scripture, and, and we've already seen this already, but let's, let's just turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, verse 18 and parallel passage in, in Mark 7, I think. But Matthew 15, 18, Jesus says this, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. And and what I want you to see here is that that sin has affected our hearts. And from our hearts, it it goes to our thoughts, our actions, and our words. And so the, the heart of man has been corrupted by sin. Men, as they come into the world, have hearts. And, and what is the heart? Somebody tell me, what, what, what is the heart of man, biblically? Do, thoughts, do, do evil thoughts, murders, adulteries come from the, the blood-pumping organ in our, in our system? No. 
Yeah, Ken says the man's nature. Yeah, that's that's right. What what specifically? What specific part of our nature does the Bible call the heart? Our our soul, our being. Yeah, um, that's that's good. Yeah, it's it. <laughs> no, that's 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 right. I think we we think of the heart as the control center, which I think we could call our our soul. Um, Biblically, the, the heart is the mind, the will, and the emotions. It, it includes all of those things. So it's, it's our thinking, our, our willing, and our emotions, are, or sometimes we might better say they, our affections, what we love and value. That's our heart. And sin has corrupted those things. Sin has corrupted our wills. Sin has corrupted our thinking. Sin has corrupted our affections, what we love, what we value. And so, and, and then because of that, you know, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, those things flow from us. And again, we, we call this, theologically, we call this total depravity. And when we, when we talk about total depravity, that word, that, that little sentence, that phrase, whatever we call that, that, um, it, it can it can be a little bit misleading. What do we mean when we say total depravity? And l- let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It, it doesn't mean that every single person in the world is as bad as they could be. You know, the, the, the Holy Spirit restrains people from evil. And so there's a, a restraining influence in the world that if removed, it would be unbelievable what men would do in the wickedness of men. And we've seen that at different times in the world history. But there's a, a restraining element where people aren't as bad as they could be if they if they didn't have that restraining element. Like for example, just right now, um, it's a I don't know I'm I'm going to come up with a really bad example, but um, there are things that that are still embarrassing to the world that they don't want to commit certain kinds of sins because. The world views those as bad and evil things. Uh, well, if, if that restraint of the world was removed, people would, would plunge into wickedness far more than they do. So total depravity does not mean that we are all as bad as we could be. It, it doesn't mean that we don't know that God exists or that, that we don't have a conscience. Men, men still have a conscience, even though they're totally depraved and they know that, that certain things are evil in and of themselves. What, what we mean then when we talk about total depravity is we mean total in two senses. The first sense is that it's total in that every single person in the world is affected by sin. The only exception is the Lord Jesus Christ and Adam when he first came into the world. But other than that, every single person that comes into this world is depraved or affected by sin. Sin has affected the totality of mankind with no exceptions. Secondly, what we mean is that we mean that that sin has affected every part of man. Right? It, it's effect, if it's affected our heart, which is the control center, it's affected the totality of us. And so let's let's go again to Romans 3.10. And, and what we what we want to remember as well when we talk about total depravity, is that the standard, when we're talking about what sin is, the standard is always God's holy and righteous standard. The, the standard is perfection. 
And so when we say that all people have fallen short of the glory of God, we recognize that the standard is actually the glory of God. That perfection is what God would demand. And no man achieves that. And so, Romans 3.10 is really Paul's summary of, um, of the sinfulness of mankind. He's really trying to argue that every single person is a sinner. And he, he goes to scripture then in, in 3.10 and he quotes from, um, he quotes from Psalm 140, uh, no, sorry, Psalm 14, which I read earlier. He quotes from Psalm, I think, 58. Um, you could probably find it in your, your Bible probably has footnotes. Mine, mine is not, doesn't have that as much, but, but, um, he's quoting from the Old Testament. And here's what he says, Romans 3.10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And there's really two things that I, I want to draw out of this here as we think about total depravity. And we'll, we'll cover this more next time. But the, the first is look at all this universal language that this affects the totality of mankind. He says, there is none. And then he just repeats, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. And so there's this repetition of this universal language that all, and, and there's no exceptions to this all, uh, there's this universal language here that Paul applies this to all mankind. And of course, what are they? What are all they? Well, they're not righteous. They, they don't fear God. They don't know the way of peace. They don't know the way of salvation. And, and they're, they're not understanding God's way of salvation and they've they've turned aside and the idea is they've turned aside to sin and to sinful behavior. And then notice notice the pervasive language that this affects all of men the the whole of the man. And and what and what we see there is is look at all the parts of the body that are used here. They're they're like first of all we could start off by by showing that it's the whole person that's involved, right? It's no one. They, they have, as a, as a person, they have turned aside. Together, all of them have become worthless in their life. They're, they're not doing good. But then look at the, all the parts of the body that he talks about. He says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Again, with the, with the speech, right? Out of the, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what are they speaking? Well, Paul's saying they, they speak evil. The Old Testament says they speak evil, poisonous, deceptive things. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Then, then he moves to the feet. The feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. The, the way that they go with their feet is ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. And then he says the, the, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so, 
really the, the whole of the man, the, his mouth, his, his actions, his feet, his eyes, all of it is, uh, is wicked. And so the, there's this pervasive language as well that this, this pervades all of mankind. And Paul says this about really those of us who have been saved too. And he says that in Titus 3.3. He says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is what we were like before salvation. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And, And note that word, slaves. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's, that's mankind before salvation. And so when we're dealing with mankind and when our mission is to reach these kind of people, we see that we need God's power to help us, right? We can't reach people like this on our own. They're not going to just become righteous on their own. And so what, what we'll do next time is we'll, we'll look a little bit more at this idea of total depravity and we'll, we'll also go into what theologians call total inability. And we'll see how depravity really affects men and then what, what needs to happen in salvation. And, and so tonight's kind of a, a bit of a, a discouraging end, right? We are sinners. The great news, just to kind of give us a, a cheerful ending to this thing, is the great news is that we have a great Savior who draws us out of this sin and makes us righteous and transforms us by His grace. And He is powerful to do this, this salvation, even in people who are this wicked. But we got to understand what we're dealing with when we go out and, and preach the gospel, that we're, we're not dealing with people that we just need to convince a little bit. We're, we're dealing with people that are actually the exact opposite of what we're trying to make them to be. But by God's grace and power, that can be accomplished. So we'll, uh, we'll end it there. Lord, we just thank you for creating us, male and female, for making us in your image. We thank you that even though we had fallen in sin, that you were a, a great savior, that you came to this world to redeem us, that you laid down your life on our behalf and uh, lived a perfect life in our place so that we could have a righteousness. We thank you for your salvation that, that really draws us out of all of those sinful things in the fall. We thank you that one day, though even now we still have sin in our lives, we thank you that one day, we will dwell with you with no sin. We will dwell with you and have nothing but love for you and a desire to glorify and honor you. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray, though, that now, even in this life, that we would be righteous and holy and be the people that glorify you, that we would be those who observe all that you commanded us to do, Lord. And we pray as a local church that, that we would have a good understanding of of who we're trying to reach when we, when we share the gospel, that we would know what man's problem is and that we would know it well because it's only when we know the problem can we give the right solution. And uh, Lord, we know that solution is your gospel, your message of salvation. And so we, we pray that we would be what you want us to be as a local church. We pray it, Lord, because we know that 
the local church is the vehicle through which you're going to glorify yourself in this age, that you deserve all glory, that you have spoken to us in your word how you want to be glorified, and and that is ultimately right now through the Great Commission, making disciples and teaching them to obey. And we know, Lord, that you do that through the local church. And so again, we pray that we'd be all that you want us to be as a local church because we want you to be glorified through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.